Hi, I'm Julia. And I'm Sam. I'm a composer. And I'm an actor. And this is the 29-Hour Podcast. Julia and I both uh, spent a lot of time developing new uh, pieces of theater. We actually met um, developing one of Julia's musicals. And along the way, we've gotten to work with some incredibly talented, super smart artists. We always just want to pick their brains. So this podcast is our conversations with those people that we are excited to share with you. We are talking to writer and performer Christiana Cole. We didn't record in our regular location, so thanks for bearing with us with a little bit of extra background noise. Well, hello. Hello, <laughs> Podbean listeners. My name is Christiana Cole, and I'm here on the 29-hour podcast talking about the off-Broadway musical that I'll be starring in. It's called An Enchanted April. And, and what is the story of? It is, it's the story, well, if you know the film or the play Enchanted April, it is, it is that. Um, beautiful music by uh, C. Michael Perry. And the book is by, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting Elizabeth's last name. I want to say, I always want to say Elizabeth Smart, but that's not correct. <laughs> um, Elizabeth Hansen um, is the, the uh, book writer and lyricist. And um, directed by Alice Jenkel at Theater Row, Theater Two. That's and so first. you've been in rehearsals for how long now? A week and two days. A week, week and, and three days. days. Three days. We started last Monday. Okay. So we're sort of in the... In, and the cast is amazing. So I play Rose Rose Arbuthnot, mm -hmm. who is very... She's very depressed. And she is married to... Uh, and it's British. So I go in and out of that <laughs> accent <laughs> in my daily life now. Um, my hus my real-life husband, Aaron Phillips, will be playing my stage husband, <gasps> Frederick Arbuthnot. I know it is so cute. Um, and our on-stage arguments only very vaguely, directly mirror our offstage arguments. So, uh, and then uh, I'm opposite. So I'm sort of, I'm the dramatic leading lady, and opposite me is Leah Hawking as the comedic leading lady, Lottie, and she's like so amazing to work with. And I just want to put it out in the universe that Leah has to play Mrs. Lovett as soon as possible. She's okay. perfect. It's like you go in and you go, oh my God, just somebody throw on the tune. Let this lady <laughs> be a star. Um, Jim Stanek is in it. It's just a really great cast. Al uh, Alma, Alma Cuervo plays uh -huh. like the funny old lady, Mrs. Fisher, and I like can't get enough of Alma. She's amazing. And then a very young actress, uh, Gina Sims, who just graduated, she's just perfect. She plays Lady Caroline, who's very proper and famous, and she's like... Gina's like six feet tall, like this beautiful woman, and it's terrific. So without getting any creepier to Gina, hi Gina. <laughs> but yeah, so, so we're, how are how are rehearsals going? They're going really well. Alice is a very um, organic director. Okay. So we worked together on another project called Urban Mom Fair that was in the Fringe. Um, oh gosh, like five years ago by Pam Grayson, and uh, I feel like. It, Alice's directing style is is most easy. It's most easily explained by talking about Urban Mom Fair because Urban Mom Fair was very much like it is exactly what you think it is. It is this cute, upbeat show about wealthy moms on the Upper East Side who and I played the the new mom in town who's just trying to figure out where she fits in. <laughs> and uh, and Alice directed this show, which was a total romp, like it was Chekhov. Uh -huh. Like she looked for the truth in every moment. And um, and so she's doing the same thing with Enchanted April, which it, the the play is so sparkling. The humor and the, like the characters, if you've not seen the film, like it's so cute. Um, it's set in the 1920s in London and uh, and then they they end up traveling to Italy and staying at a villa there. And that's basically the whole plot is 
if you rent the best Airbnb, it will save your marriage. Uh-huh. That is the plot of Enchanted April, which I fully believe. I'm a big Airbnb fan. Uh-huh. Um, but Alice has such a wonderful touch because she doesn't indulge in... Uh, she doesn't put hats on hats, you uh-huh. know, as a theater maker. She does not go, okay, now this is the whimsical song. Let's be triple whimsical. She'll, like, look to fight against it when it's right. And um, so it's always a pleasure to work with her in that cool. way. Yeah. Is there anything that, like, you're thinking about as you're in rehearsal? Mm. Like, did you set any goals for the rehearsal process or the, or this production? Or I mostly just try to – I feel like my process has changed lately. And Aaron, my husband, uh, who is also my full-time live-in acting coach, <laughs> helps me a lot with this. Uh, I, As a writer, uh, because I write musicals, I think so much about the words. And I'm, I think so much about what exactly it has to be, because that's a lot of the work is in that precision. And when it's time for me to, for instance, take some audition sides or approach a role... I have to not get so literal with it, mm. and I have to not get bogged down in the details too soon. So for me, the process is very much like almost as if you have, uh, uh, by way of analogy, um, imagine a printing press or something or a large stamp, and then there's a piece of paper, and you roll back and forth to get the ink, to get the impression, to get the image, right? And that's, to me, what I feel like I'm doing right now is I'm just getting back and forth to find who this person really is. Because it is an adaptation. It's not, I can't just make the same choice as the lady in the film does. You know what I mean? So it is about finding where is the truth of Rose. And in that process, get those damn lines memorized. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and, and get them memorized with the intention. So for me right now, my pro- I feel very lumpy. I feel very much like I'm figuring out what belongs to what. And like, oh, this beat, this this is this thing. And I think that's the best feeling as an actor when you can go, okay, this is no longer a series of isolated lines that I have mm-hmm. to somehow shove in my head. But this is the beat we're playing. We're on to this thing. And this yeah. is where I try to give her coffee. And oh, she gives me coffee. And it's the whole business, you know? And then the lines just become a part of a thing rather than, oh, what's my next word? I hate that. Right. I hate that feeling. I just right. want to be able to just say what's happening, you know? Yeah. So you know the director already. Are there other people on the production who are known trusted collaborators of yours? Um, other than your other than my husband. Um, let me see. Who else do I already did I already know on the show? I guess maybe that was. I'll feel terrible if I'm forgetting someone. But no, I think they were all all new to me, That's and that fun. was it. Was very exciting. I love going into a process and feeling like it's a whole goodie bag of new people. Yeah. Have you and your husband played across from each other romantically before? We have, we have, and we haven't. We have in very small moments. We're, so I'm a member of the BMI Musical Theater Writers Workshop. I'm in the Advanced Songwriting Workshop, and I'm also in the Librettist Workshop. Um, and I'm a book writer, lyricist, and composer. And uh, so I have the opportunity, and I've had the opportunity since I joined BMI uh, seven years ago, to work on a ton of new stuff and I met Aaron actually like we connected sort of because of BMI we connected initially we met on a show called the Barty Bunch the Shakespearean mashup of the Brady's and the Partridges Uh (laughs) which was at a theater at St. Clement's 
And we both got cast in the Fringe Festival run. And then and I was cast as uh, Laurie Partridge, and he was cast as my brother, Chris. But then I ended up booking something else, and so I didn't do the Fringe. And I saw him in the Fringe, and I was like, oh, my God, this show is so cute. Oh, I'm so sad I don't get to do the show. And then, oh, well, it'll never happen. And then, like, a year later, we did a workshop, a pre-off-Broadway workshop, and Aaron and I did that together. That was when we, like, met, basically. And But that was, like, five seconds, like, oh, it's nice to meet you. Right. <clears throat> you know, like, two days of rehearsal or something. And then uh, I ended up doing the show off-Broadway. He didn't because he had booked something else, so he was out doing another show. And... Um, Anyway, I'm telling you the story of how we met, which was not your question. <laughs> I, like, I love origin stories. <laughs> well, so he saw me in the show. I was a good enough actor for him. And so then we we ran into each other again at BMI. And we were both performing in the BMI Smoker. And he asked me out. And I was kind of already seeing someone. And I was like, oh, I just got out of a relationship. Like, whatever, whatever. Um but then we got cast opposite each other in our friend Robert John Ford and Adam Sakiyama's, uh, no, it was, it was their second year presentation um, in BMI. It was, so it was a 20-minute presentation of songs from a hypothetical adaptation of the film um, Waking Ned Divine. Mm. So I played Maggie, and he played Pig, the pig farmer, and our, like, our scene together, like the scene we did together was him asking me to marry him through song. And the song was called What's Mine Is Yours. What's mine is yours, and saints be praised. What's yours is mine. I'll gather da 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 if you put away the swine. It was our recessional music. Yes. So it was, we did, it was a beautiful, you know, piano, guitar. Probably somebody was shaking a tambourine or something, uh-huh. but um, but yeah. So we we exited to that. The last the last beat of our wedding was I was very proud of. I was very proud of the theater of our wedding because it was it was very theatrical. It's uh-huh. a play with real life consequences. Uh-huh. Um, and the last beat was my friend, one of our best friends, Holly. She officiated and she uh what was it she we we did our you know whatever you guys are married and then she said okay and um you know if you can't love yourself. And how the hell are you going to love somebody else? And can you get an amen? And then, like, half everyone in the congregation that watched Drag Race said amen. And then she said, now let the music play. And then the band started and we left. And I was like, yay, if I ever meet RuPaul, I'll try to figure out how to explain all of that in 10 seconds. I do love theater people weddings. I feel like they're the funnest to attend because the people who do spend all their time thinking about taking people through experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's sort of like, I think that theater, I remember my mom um, had said, well, I don't want to, you know, don't make it into like a play. Don't make it mm-hmm. theater. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, mom, you don't understand. Like theater is the most sacred thing. Like to me, oh my God, if it's not theater, what a disappointment. <laughs> you know, I don't want to come and witness a bureaucratic non-ceremony. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so we've, so, uh, Aaron and I have, have played opposite each other in small ways, but this is the first time we've been in a full production opposite each other. So that it is really nice. It's nice to sing with him. He's got such a good voice. Yeah. I always, I'm always in awe of real theater couples because <laughs> I just have like listened to the last five years too many times. Oh my god! So it's like I know that template, which is obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> but like when it works, yeah. it's so nice. Yeah, that that's really funny. Yeah, last five years. That's one of those things that, like, when we first got together, I, oh god, I hope you won't mind me saying this, that he had actually he's been married before, uh, once, and um, at their reception they sang, 
next 10 minutes. Oh, boy. What? I know. And I was like, did you know then? Huh? Like, like oh, how? Yeah. How? <laughs> how did you, you sang that of all the songs? But, um, but yeah, no, we have like a really nice balance. And I think it's because for many years I had dated uh, writers and composers. I dated composers. And I went to Manhattan School of Music for undergrad. I don't have a master's degree, but that makes it sound open-ended. Um, <laughs> but I went to MSM for classical voice, and I felt very alienated there. I, I, I mean, I loved it. It was the best decision I ever made was going to MSM and, and getting that education, because I think it's the best music education money can buy. But I didn't feel like I fit in with the singers, and I transferred up from a small Christian college in Texas where I'd gone for two years. I'm from Austin, or Texas. And I'd gone to Southwestern University for two years, and then when I transferred up, oh my goodness, it was like the biggest cultural shock I'd ever been through. And especially the fact that I'd gone from what was really like a liberal arts, a very traditional kind of liberal arts curriculum. Mm -hmm. You're writing papers, you're having to like, you're being expected to think about stuff. And then I transferred to MSM and they don't even accept SAT scores. Like it is uh -huh. 100, it is a, I mean, it is a conservatory, but it, 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 it did not really dawn on me till I got there what that would mean for my mm -hmm. everyday existence and what it would mean for who my colleagues were. Um, and I love, I, I was surrounded by very, very kind people and good people and very talented people, but I didn't really feel like I found my home in New York until I came to BMI and until I was surrounded by writers. Mm -hmm. I had made do at MSM by hanging out a lot with composers and dating composers and being in as much in that world as I could because I already knew that it was something that would be very important to me. I did not know when I was at MSM that I was going to be writing musicals. I didn't know that I would be, well, I, if, I, if I had been able to look at myself in the mirror, I would have known that I was going to be singing them. But at the time, I had gone to MSM with the very full intention of being an opera singer and, and transitioning away from musical theater to singing opera. And so I'd grown up all in Austin singing tons, doing tons of musicals outside of school. There was like a small after school camp that I did off starting at age 12 until I was like 17 called Kids Acting. And that was where I found my first real like crew of people that matched my soul, my tribe. And when I went to opera world, I just did not feel that same sense of, oh, these are my people. Yeah. You know, it was a very, very different industry. Why did you decide to, to head towards opera? I wanted to sing flawlessly and I did not want the the literally the way that I phrased it at the time which is very snarky but I was 18 um I as I said I don't want to buy a solid gold mobile home and go to musical theater school because I really did not want to learn just how to sing this one way mm. I wanted to learn I wanted to take it all on and I but it wasn't just the singing and I didn't have enough self-awareness at the time to totally understand my motivations because uh, here's the thing is if you had sat 18 year old me down and gone well what would be your biggest dream I'd be like to be on Broadway <laughs> and you'd go so then why are you going to opera school little child and I'd go because I'm a perfectionist don't you understand <laughs> like that is the true answer uh -huh. is that it was a competitive drive 
it was a drive to be the best singer in the world. It was the drive to sing louder without any amplification than anyone else around me. Mm. Louder, higher, you name it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is so not the point, but what is a solid gold mobile home? What does that mean? (laughs) Um, I guess I think of it as like, would you rather live in a beautiful, normal home or have a solid gold one, but it's a mobile home? Not that but does that nothing to offer a musical theater? Uh, okay, fair <laughs> enough. I'm really glad you're interrogating 18 year old Christiana yeah. about their 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 shameful ways of thinking. <laughs> um, I guess what I looked at it as was at the time Wicked had come out not long. I graduated from high school in 2004. When did Wicked come out? Like 2001, three. three? Okay, so it had just come out, and I was completely not a part of it. Mm-hmm. It happened, and I went. It, I missed it. I listened to it for just a minute, and I was like, well, I don't see myself. This is not me, mm-hmm. because I was not Galinda. I did not have the Galinda energy. I had the Galinda notes, but I was not. That was, look at me. No, I'm the brunette, you know? Mm-hmm. But I did not identify with Alphabet at all. I was raised singing at church. Mm-hmm. I was a choral singer. I had this beautiful mix, this effortless princess thing. And so I was one of these fools that was like, well, I'll just sing beautifully, and that will be my thing. And people, and they, and they will line up down Eighth Avenue to listen to me mix like a champion. <laughs> oh, she's crying now. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, it was just, it was not my thing, and, and so when I looked at the world on Broadway as it was, I did not see myself. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, I don't want to go to school for this. Like, what mm-hmm. a waste of time. Especially because, and again, this is me, past me talking, mm-hmm. I already know how to do this shit, <laughs> you know? And, and, and like, the thing is, is like, that, that does sound very cocky, but I had been the lead in, like, every single show. I was one of those people that was like, oh, oh Christie's Maria and West Side Story. Christie's Yum Yum and the Mikado. Just to name two roles I'll never play again because I'm <laughs> white. Um, but like, yeah, yeah, but there were some, but like, I was that person that did all those things. And so I, I had a very, um, high estimation of my talent and I figured that would work just as well and that I would reach my goal just as well. But I didn't want to miss the opportunity to dive into art music. I didn't want to miss the opportunity to really know because I just did not want to be at a party with somebody who was talking about opera and me be like, I'm a singer, but then not know what they were talking about. Mm. I had to know the whole map. And also, but as a writer, too, I had to know it. I had to know what opera was. And, th- and I think that that's the, that's, this is how you really know I was an idiot, is that I went to school at Manhattan School of Music. I showed up, gave them my student loan debt promise. <laughs> and I was going to say, give them my money, but there was no money. It was just a note I signed. Um, and I had seen one opera in my entire life. And I didn't even like it. Huh. I didn't even like it. I saw Cozy, Cozy Fantasy mm-hmm. by Mozart. And I remember just going, well, this is sexist and boring. That's four mm-hmm. hours long, right? And um, so I went to school and I put myself on a very, very strict diet of opera. I did not see musicals. I, I did not engage with that style of singing for three years. And by the end, I got, you know, pretty good. And I was leading the opera. And then I graduated and I realized that I was really poor. And... That was what made the decision for me, actually, was hmm. something, was was realities of capitalism. Hmm. Um, opera is a very, very different industry. And 
while I was at MSM, I just saw and observed a lot of things that told me that I would not really be able to hack it in that community. Um, for instance, uh, you're pretty much expected to get a master's degree, first of all. You, you're going to, into opera? Well, the reality is, is your operatic voice does not finish developing until question mark year. Depending on mm -hmm. what vocal type you are, that could be 40 if you're a really, really full <laughs> Wagnerian mezzo or something, right? right? Um, but but if unless you're a coloratura, unless you're a sobretta, very li a light, very light lyric, you're not going to be done developing until you're 30 or so, right? So what you're expected to do during that time is just train and train and train because you're an athlete. It is like being a dancer of the highest, it's like being a ballerina. And so you're expected to prepare all the roles. You're supposed to plan out, okay, here's the canon. I'm gonna figure out what my roles are and I'm gonna learn them. And I'm gonna do that at, in a master's program, potentially an artist, uh, an artist uh, diploma program. And then after that, the path is that you're expected to go on is you're expected to go to young artist programs, YAPs. Many, which pay you next to nothing, maybe a thousand dollars stipend for your summer. Um, there are also pay to plays uh, that put the pay to plays in musical theater to shame. People talk oh, about, oh, there's pay to plays in musical theater. I'm like, bitch, in opera, it's like, uh, they're like, like literally, here's a story. When I went, well, Sam, were you going to ask something? Well, I was going to say, I've heard that like for auditions, mm -hmm. you have to pay the yeah. accompanist on the day. You have to pay for the audition. Wow. Yeah. You're paying an, appli an application fee of 50, 100 bucks, and then you pay the pianist as well. Wow. Yeah. Or you bring your own pianist, who you also pay. Huh. Um, and also, musical theater, unlike, uh, I'm sorry, opera, opera has a very strict audition season in the mm -hmm. fall. So you're really only auditioning for like three months, two, three oh, months. Wow. Um, so there are many people who uh, do a very savvy thing and they'll come up just for audition season and then they'll leave. But um, but yeah, but that's at the end. That's at the end of the line. That's after they've already milked you. Because mm -hmm. like, for instance, when I was uh, coming into my first year at MSM, I was a transfer student. So I came in and I had already done two years of college at Southwestern. But very appropriately, they put me in with the sophomores again because I wasn't vocally advanced to be with the juniors. Thank God. The junior mm -hmm. class was filled with like monster beast vocalists oh, who I was like, please do not make me sing next to them. <laughs> um, because I was really... I, I was not, I didn't understand the planet I was on. I came in and I literally was like, De vieni non tardaro gioia bella. Like every opera person listening at home will cringe because that is so wrong. Every, it's wrong. Wait till compare and contrast, now do it right. De vieni non tardaro gioia bella. Like it's it's totally different yeah. resonance. Also, this is the wrong key. This is like down by maybe a third or fourth. Um, but it's it's about having a. It's not about being. Huh, it's not about being. It's about this headspace. Uh -huh. um, my first day in opera studio. Sophomore year, first year at MSM. Everybody else is a sophomore. We go around the circle, and there's like 25 people maybe. It was kind of a big class, so like 22, 25 people uh, that are like your class. And they and our opera director, Gord Dostrovsky, had us go around and say, what did you do this summer? Totally normal conversation. Mm -hmm. 
So I was, for some reason, one of the first people, just by coincidence of chairs, and I was like, hi, I'm new. Uh, I'm from Austin, Texas, and this summer I taught children's theater, and I worked at an ice cream shop. Great. Next person. Hi. Um, well, I was in uh, Bruges for the Bruges program for a month, and then my family and I went to Italy for six weeks. Um, I did the Opertalia program there, and then uh, we finished off in Berlin, and I, I just ha took some lessons. Hmm. And I'm like, uh, uh, and then it's like every single person. Yeah. That was the answer for everyone, was that they had done these summer pay-to-play programs in Europe. Um, most of them are in Italy, but they're also in Salzburg. There's not really any in Germany because the Germans all take their vacations to Italy in the summer, <laughs> so that's where the programs are. But these programs, you know, they're costing like $5,000 at the time. And that's in 2006 money. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, just from the minute you get in the door, that's what is expected of you. And there's no, there's not really a path without it. Mm. That's the thing. Is like, I feel yeah. like with musical theater, you don't have to go to Carnegie Mellon. You don't have to go to a really fancy school. You can, and it helps. But there are other ways. Yeah. Um, so basically, once I got that memo, and then, you know, in master classes, there would, they would literally just say, like, don't take the train, ever. Always take cabs. Because there's sick people oh. on the train. There's other people oh, who you could be around, and you could make you sick if they sneeze on you. So they'd say, don't do that. Also, a popular one was, don't get a job. Huh. That was a real popular piece of advice, because you need to spend all of your energy focusing on singing. So I graduated and I immediately discovered that I would owe a minimum of $760 a month in student loan debt because I graduated with $84,000 in student loans. Could have been much worse. My parents helped me out with some of it. Thank you, mom and dad. Nonetheless, mm -hmm. quite a shit show. So I was like, <laughs> okay. And they did not have the tolerance. Like they, they took that on and did their own thing, but my parents, cut me off as soon as I graduated. There was no paying for rent. There was no supplement. Like, that was it. I had my own credit card. And um, so I just had to get really real with myself. I had to be like, okay, what is your life? Like, you can look at these other people and they have their own path, but what is their path that's real for you? So I remember going on to Playbill.com and finding a listing for the phantom epa and seeing that the broadway minimum salary was like at the time like one thousand eight hundred dollars or one thousand six hundred dollars something and i was just like that's for the that's for the lowest person in the totem pole that's for the tree too hmm. well i'm in i'm in i'm doing this because hmm. this is what i can do yeah. this is an industry i can be a part of not to mention the fact that i'd never really fit in with the opera crowd it just always felt very oh very heavy and very um just the parties aren't fun <laughs> yeah. were you excited about the stuff you were working on i was excited to push myself uh -huh. i i love opera i did not always love opera but during those years at msm i learned i, I learned it and i think that that's the mistake that opera marketers make nowadays is they think they can just market it different and like oh then people will like it no no this is this is something that requires a lot of repeated viewing it's like baseball 
I hate what, baseball's so boring, right? But people that get into it get really into it because yeah. they they know what to look for. Mm -hmm. And opera is the same way. You if you just go in and you're like, I'm gonna be entertained at the opera. No, no, you have to know the opera. You have to like know what yeah. you're listening for. You have to like be aware of like, okay, what is what is happening? Because all of the people that would have gone to see the opera would have known that. They would have gone in already having a lot of knowledge about what they were going right. to see. Um, so I just saw a ton. I mean, I was at the Met in the family circle. I saw everything in the repertory. I saw all the new stuff for all those years. And um, and I was also at the time dating a contemporary opera composer. And so I, I am singing a ton of new music. So while I was at MSM, I had a very rich musical life. Uh, I, I enjoyed the preparation of the opera. I enjoyed the challenge of the foreign languages. I, but I loved working with the new people because they would actually make me do really hard shit that wasn't just hard, like, oh, who's got, like, the prettier high note? It was hard musically. Mm -hmm. So I was singing a lot of very avant-garde stuff. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I was fed tremendously as an artist at that time. Cool. Well, it's yeah. interesting, like, what you're saying about how to really enjoy opera, you need to have a sort of a familiarity, mm -hmm. what that means for new opera. Because I feel like, if there's no recording, if mm -hmm. most of these like institutions love producing premieres, don't really love producing second, third, fourth pr productions, mm -hmm. just like what kind of life those pieces have in mm. the world. You strike on something so crucial. Yeah, and I don't have an answer for it. Um, yeah, I mean, you look at some of these operas, like, what was it with it? Was it Nixon in China that, like, mm -hmm. hadn't been back at the Met for, like, since they'd written it? And it's yeah, like, yeah. Uh, guys, <laughs> it's waiting around. Bring it back, you know? <laughs> but, yeah. It's a tough industry because it's not an, a business. Mm. It's a museum. Mm. So it's who gets invited to get up on the stage and do mm -hmm. their scene from the museum play. And like even if you just look at how it works internationally, it's opera is used as diplomacy. Mm -hmm. The people that are chosen to be opera singers are truly chosen. And I've seen it, and, it, and that's not a slam because they're all really good, but there's way more really good singers in the opera world that are being churned out by these conservatories than, than there are jobs for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of one of these things where how do you sort for this? How do you create any kind of distinction? And over time, that distinction has been who can, who can hang the longest, who can keep showing up and paying for those coachings and mm -hmm. keep getting better and yeah. better and better and better. And then you get to a certain point where you go, this person's undeniably the best. We mm -hmm. want them to, because look, they've been training for so long. And all of their competitors have fallen away. Hmm. Attrition is huge. Yeah. I, I looked at it and I just cut my losses. I looked at it at 23 and went, well, <laughs> I will never out, I will never be able to be the best at this. And Yes, that is always my goal. So I'm super ambitious, you know? It's interesting. I'm realizing that my outlook on training, I think, is a little unevolved. Like, there's not that much that I feel like. I mean, yes, in composing, I'm always trying to be a better composer. I'm always trying to learn and listen to new things. But, like, I'm not in, say, regular composition lessons. Mm. And I think, to some extent, I think of training as, like, a thing you do to get good enough to do your thing, and then you're trained. But you, as someone who does coachings and, like, hearing you talk about opera, it's so interesting to think about training as a thing that you keep getting better and better and better and better and better, and there doesn't have to be, like, a ceiling on it. Yeah. that Yeah, I don't think there will ever be a ceiling. I... I feel like with coaching, as a performer now, it's like I train for specific stuff. Like, it feels like, okay, I need to work this thing into my body. But since I'm a voice teacher, like, I know how to do a lot of that on my own. Like, and when I, but 
I also know the moments when I'm like, I need help. <laughs> and then I can find others. But, yeah. yeah and I, I think training is a different thing when it's like um, something physical as opposed to something yeah. mental, hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. it is possible for your voice to fall out of shape. I mean, obviously not super extremely, but... Oh, yeah, it's totally possible. Yeah. Or it's possible, you know, I see people who do a role and they ratchet into a specific part of their voice and yeah. then they need to come back and kind of relax back to neutral. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I know this is totally cheating because it says that on your website, <laughs> but that you espouse the principles of that being classically trained helps you with pop and musical theater type sound production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it has in a way that I did not foresee. I have this whole process of learning to sing has been the most harrowing psychological journey you can undergo. <laughs> like, I really, really believe that anyone who takes voice lessons is very brave because it's so hard. And Sam, you have a feeling? Mm-hmm, I do. I agree. Yeah, you yeah. started voice lessons not that long ago, is that yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. You haven't talked about it in a while. How's it going? Oh, I'm not taking any right now. Okay. I sort of, um, like you, realized that I had a job this summer and realized that I needed help, mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. sp- specifically for that job. And I took um, weekly lessons leading up until that. And I haven't since I've been back, but mm. I have been realizing recently that I um, would like to. Mm. It feels good. It feels good to know what you're doing. And that to me is what lessons are about. But Mm -hmm. it does feel very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It does feel, which sounds ridiculous to say, like, I'm very brave to be going to my voice lessons, but it does feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's this horrible paradoxical art form where the less control you exert, the better you get at it. Kind of. But only with help. You know, Mm -hmm. um, when I, uh, so after I graduated from MSM, I studied with another teacher, uh, Ron Rains, who perhaps you know, he was like nominated for a Tony Award for Follies. He was opposite Bernadette Peters and that. His wife, Donna Vaughn, was my opera director at MSM. Mm-hmm. And she was a really big supporter of mine. And, um, and so when I left, I wanted to study with a new teacher just because, you know, I studied with my teacher for three years in school. That was a great experience. It was time to try something new. And so she said, this is not nepotism, but you should study with my husband, Ron, because I think he has, like, the thing that you mm-hmm. need. Spoiler alert, that thing was learning how to use my diaphragm, <laughs> uh, which somehow had flown right past me in those three yeah. years. And uh, and so I think one of the big things I learned then, well, was that you can make pretty sounds without being a good singer. Mm-hmm. And that's really the crux of it. That's the crux of the problem with voice lessons for many people is that there are a lot of people who are, who can make very pretty sounds, but they've got a lot of tension and they've got limitations. And some people will stay in denial for a very long time about their limitations because mm-hmm. for many people, many, many people believe that singing is a fixed skill. Kind of like writing in a way, that there's this kind of illusion of you're just born with it, Hmm. you know, or like, oh, that person has a big range. I don't have a big range. When like all of it is freaking coordination. It's Mm -hmm. just an instrument. It's just an instrument you're learning to play in the dark. And I 
feel like I was somebody that had that point of view that it was a little bit fixed because of my experiences succeeding so much at a young age. Mm-hmm. When I was in, in high school, when I was in, uh, in college at Southwestern, but then a little, and a little bit at MSM too. I just had this, I didn't, I had not yet found um, a teacher that could teach me breath support. And so I felt like, God, I've got this pretty voice, but I just don't, I don't really know how to get through to that next level. Mm. And you end up feeling this weird complex of like both shame and pride because you're sort of mm-hmm. like, well, I'm really good. And so I, and it can't get any better. So, but I am the best. And you just end up like devolving into a puddle of bullshit. And, and so when I started studying with Ron, he was just very no nonsense. And he was like, no, relax your belly. Okay. Now you can breathe. You cannot breathe if you're tight, you know, and just all this common sense stuff. And, uh, and so when I, after three years of studying with him, and I'm not even kidding, we sang Caro Mio Ben every lesson for three years. Mm-hmm. That's one of the, in, in classical world, there's a book called The 27 Italian Art Songs and Arias, which like everyone sings, and they're like a rite of passage. That is probably one of the most standard ones. Three years of Caro Mio Ben, and then one day he was like, all right, I think you've like figured it out. And I was mm-hmm. like, I think I have too. And then I started teaching. And that was when... Like, that was my education, and then when I began teaching, that is when I began grad school, in my feeling, in my heart. Because then it was no longer just caring for the things about my my voice that I cared about. Well, oh, well, what do you want to do, Christy? Now, I've got these people coming in. I want to be able to do this. I want to be able to sing this. Oh, okay. I'll figure that out for you then, right away, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I didn't go into musical theater at first being a belter at all. Like I was, I was a mixer and I'd gone to opera school and love me, love me. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, and, and, and here's the thing is I was very happy with that sound. Mm-hmm. I, I still am. I love that sound. This Enchanted April is all very full. It's almost operatic. It is like more operatic than Les Mis. Mm-hmm. Like it's full. It is often drama. <laughs> um, and so it's funny because I feel like I'm finally living out the dream, like the dream scenario I thought would happen just all the time when mm-hmm. I was younger, where I would be, you know, starring in a legit show. Ha ha ha. This is, my dream has come true. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I, so I was, so I was teaching and I had this mix and women, young women came in being like, I want to high belt this. How can I high belt this better? Now I could help them with their breath and I could do all that stuff, but I didn't have a hang for the placement because I'd never done it and I'd never been interested in it because it just sounded like yelling and, mm-hmm. and I didn't care for the sound and but then I was motivated by my desire to teach them how to do it better mm. I, I had enough 19 year olds coming in and belting their faces off without really knowing what they were doing that I kind of was like okay this can't be rocket science if if, <laughs> if this person can just come in and be like bah! then like oh, yeah. I can probably figure it out if I just freaking try uh-huh. so then I tried and it really taught me how to try it taught me how to try as a performer in a way that I had forgotten how to do. How you do you know? mean? Well, when you're 12, you're just trying to be the best. You're just, I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to keep doing it. And we have that concept in Buddhism called beginner's mind, right? Which is that we, if we start with a task being like, all right, I'm starting at the beginning and I'm going to do this. I'm gonna throw, it's so much easier than if we resent starting over and we resent Mm. being a beginner and as adults we hate being beginners because we did it for our whole childhood we're just over it we want to be done training right but I was just like nope time to humble myself so like I for three years I spent three years privately learning how to belt and after about the first 18 months I sang memory at 54 below 
and that went fine. Nothing bad happened. It was good. <laughs> and then it was good. my thank you. And then my friend Paul Lidman sent the video of me to his voice teacher, Doug Susumago, in California. And Doug Susumago pinpointed the three things I was doing wrong. I went out, I studied a little bit with Mamie Paris, I studied a little bit with Lysandria Woolsey, and then I went out to Doug, and he gave me one lesson, and that was it. And now it's been hooked in ever since. Mm-hmm. And so, now I can teach, now now my, the joy of my life is teaching Sopranos how to belt. Because it's just not rocket science. And I, and I, if I have one mission on this podcast today, it is to spread the good news. <laughs> that like, if you think you are a bad singer, or if you think that you have problems that are just beyond repair i'm just here to say that's bullshit and that's not true like unless you have an underlying health condition unless you have half a lung you know unless there's something unless you have a vocal injury those are real right but too often i see people really holding themselves back and and singing in ways that i know that they're smart people i know that if they just went out and spent a little money on some voice lessons they could be much more competitive So anyway, so then once I learned how to belt, it all got a lot, like I started booking (laughs) and I started like actually being in the roles that people saw me as, because that's the other thing about opera land Mm. is that it's, there's no typecasting in opera. Mm. They're not like, I mean, there is, you go to these opera, like opera people think there is, but they don't, they're not, they're comparing it to the olden days of opera before there were like photographs, right? Mm. They're not comparing it to musical theater. By our musical theater standards, there is no typecasting in opera because you've got 50-year-olds playing 19-year-olds. You just don't see that really here, right? right? Uh, Exceptions exist, but usually it's meant to be funny or meant to be a reference or meant to be like, it it is a statement by the casting. In opera, it's just not even a thing. Um, And why am I saying that? I'm saying that because it has to do with, I don't know. It's true, though. You know what I keep coming back to? This is from a while ago, but I just think it was interesting. You're thinking about... Well, with opera people, the parties aren't just fun. And this idea of, like, <laughs> yeah. that, like your profession is, in a way, your people, and you're making a choice of, like, this is what I want to surround myself with. Absolutely. I've just been, like, thinking about if that's especially true of working in the arts or, like, I don't even know if, like, mm. if you feel that way, that part of the appeal of theater is that this is your tribe of people. Huh. Yeah. I've never really thought of that consciously, but... Um, there is like a, I would say that I do have like, um, well, let me, let me say this, which is like when I was like sitting in my, um, childhood home in high school, like frantically going on the internet pre YouTube, trying to find some reference to like new, um, composers in New York city. Um, when I have met those people, it's been like very exciting to me. Like, like that kind of thing is very real for me. This sort of like excitement to be with the people who have the same artistic values as yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Um, parties are another thing, but, but, but <laughs> I get, I get, but I get <laughs> yeah. parties are very stressful for me, but I get the sentiment completely. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was about like, okay, like, I don't know. I, I, and then I want to go back and answer your question about how bel canto technique informs belting and stuff because I didn't really put the button on that, so I'll be right back. But <laughs> what I want to say about uh, industry, yeah, like the way I've always looked at it is like when people are like, well, okay, I graduated with an arts degree in 2009 and my friends that graduated with law degrees couldn't get jobs. Hmm. So who's the dummy now? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like there's, there is an industry, there is a musical theater industrial complex that you can plug into and be a part of 
even if you're not, even if you come in and your entrance ramp is actor, as for so many people it is, that may not be your true calling. You might really be an agent. You might really be mm-hmm. a writer. You might really be a stage. Like, there's all different ways that you can begin to move around. And that moving around starts at around age 12 and ends never. Because uh-huh. then as you continue in your career, you everybody moves around. Yeah. The worst piece of advice I ever, ever got was when I came right out. I was out of school and I was doing this show that well, I will not name because it was so bad. And the producer said to me, don't tell people you're a writer. He said it'll confuse people. Hmm. If you're going to sing your own material for them, tell them someone else wrote it. Wow. And, like, that was wrong because I've gotten more work from my writer friends than from anybody because the minute, if you walk into a space and say, hi, I'm... I'm a writer, blah, 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 blah. And then they happen to hear you sing. Well, guess what? You've just let that person make a discovery. And people love to think it was their idea. And then all of a sudden they're going, oh, well, did you know? And then it becomes this swirling event instead of, you know, I don't know why people would keep it a secret that they're talented at stuff. That doesn't make sense. Well, how did you come to writing? Well, um, okay, I'm going to answer that, but I really have to oh, finish right, this. Okay, right, so right. I'm going to say that, and then we'll get to that uh, <laughs> teaser for what's next. So, so Bel Canto, the only reason why it makes you good at it is because it's so hard to do that once you that it, basically what what my vocal training has forced me to do is create a very detailed understanding, like a detailed inner knowledge of what I'm feeling and an awareness of my body mm-hmm. that is extremely nuanced. And so, because I've developed that way of thinking it permits me to now think in that way about all kinds of sound making. It's part of why I think I married my husband is he's a voiceover actor mm-hmm. and he is one of these people that has a thousand voices mm-hmm. and that completely stole my pants, you know? <laughs> um, so I started writing. I was always a writer. And from the time I was very small, I read Harriet the Spy and I went around my neighborhood with a little journal and spied on people and did all the weird shit you do when you're a kid writer. <laughs> I kept tons of journals. I was obsessed with it, you know, and, 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 but it was always very private. And I was like, I loved school. I was very obedient and my, I, I have a really, really wonderful family, but they're a very uh, particular family. And so I really, school was a place where I could really exist and really put a lot of myself and it was responded to in a way that made me feel very good and very seen. So, so I excelled in English class and history class. And at some point, I, I stopped trying with math and I started trying again. And then I realized I was going to music school and I just stopped again. <laughs> but, uh, but I started writing in earnest. Well, when I, was, when I was applying for college, I knew that I would either go to school for music performance or creative writing. And I thought, well, um, they're both not very lucrative so I will go to the thing that will give me more to write about and so I chose that because I thought I will always write but the time to train this instrument is right now and there is a time period on that and writing will always be here and no one cares about what a young writer has to say because you're dummy so I just thought I'll just I'll just go live a life right so I went off and I did that and but while I was at MSM I was already starting to write and I I wanted to have a I considered a double major but it would have cost me another $200,000. So I was like, that's not happening. But I did do a cross register with uh, Columbia and I took creative writing there for a semester and that was great. And we had like a 
cabaret at the school and I would always, every year I would like host it or write parody lyrics or participate in some way that was just not the way that other singers would have been interested in participating. And I was hanging out with all these composers. And um, so by the time, and, and I did all sorts of like small projects, by the time I got to 2012, no, 2011, doesn't matter. No one cares. Um, I was dating someone and I had just booked, it was like summer, it was like spring 2011. It doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> okay. It was springtime. <laughs> and I had booked a production of Hair. I was going to be Sheila and Hair. And also my boyfriend at the time had his show, was getting produced at a festival. And I had developed one of the roles great they were gonna have like this big broadway team come and do it and i thought what a great summer i had mm -hmm. and then the production of hair got canceled because they spent all their money on avenue q mm -hmm. so they pulled that rug right out they were like really sorry i was like it's okay and then i didn't get cast in his show because they decided to go with someone younger and who had a broadway credit <laughs> tears <laughs> and i literally thought who do you have to blow <sighs> because if i can't get a job this way then, and this is when you cue the, maybe it's time to be a writer music. <laughs> um, and so I just, just, I was just like, all right, this is, this isn't it. And my friend, Matthew Anchell, who's an unbelievable opera singer, um, his parents were opera singers. He is a six foot four basso profundo, also a terrific drag queen, does the best glitter and be gay I have ever <laughs> heard. <laughs> and he came to me and said, my patron would like to produce a musical for my drag persona Veronica Garland and we would like you to write it at this point I had written some a song or two <laughs> and I was like oh okay what are you thinking like a 45 minute chamber piece all set in one location and he was like I would like a world war ii epic two acts and I said let's do it <laughs> because I got a budget and a deadline and I said yes. Why did they come to you? Well, Matt had always known me at MSM as the only person that was a musical theater writer. <laughs> like, uh -huh. like at MSM, that I was that person. Yeah. I was as close as you would get, and it wasn't like I was being super loud and obnoxious about it. It was, if anything, something I was trying to suppress. <laughs> but, um, but I'm an irrepressible ham, and so he knew. And so I wrote uh, Bombshell Baby, starring Veronica Garland with my friend Rachel Felstein. She and I wrote it together with Matt as well. He supplied some material too. And um, and we put it up at the Ensemble Studio Theater. And it had a sold out weekend of shows. And then I thought, and it was good. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. People liked it. People left being like, that song was catchy. Mm -hmm. And and even now it warms my heart. I get messages from people who were in Bob Shell Baby saying that they like, Where's the revival? Uh -huh. Which is so sweet. But um, my mom, look, is a huge Bombshell Baby fan. <laughs> it's literally about a drag queen who fights Nazis. Mm -hmm. um, and so so then that gave me a lot of confidence. And after that, I heard from my friend Natalie Tenenbaum. She was like, have you heard of BMI? You should apply You should apply for it. And I was like, well, okay, I could do that. And then I did, and I got in. And that was when I started making the internal identity shift and going okay i am a, i am a writer now it's not just this theoretical thing in the distance it's something that's going to become a part of my life and it has been ever since i love that so story. when you say when you were like cue the like i'm gonna i should be a writer music, <laughs> like 
in that moment, were you thinking of it as like something you were doing to bolster your performance career? Well, funny enough, no, because I didn't have a role in Bombshell Baby. I didn't, that was not, I remember thinking, I won't be able to write this if I keep thinking about me you know uh-huh. like <laughs> uh, there was a role that at the beginning I kind of was thinking oh maybe I'm the lesbian fighter pilot but uh-huh. nah like it was very it wasn't tempting it was sort of like a distraction uh-huh. um so yeah I never thought of it as like the well-meaning advice to like do your own work right. it did yeah. not feel connected to that at all okay. it felt very much like well I've got a summer that was about to be full and now it's completely empty and I have this opportunity and of course I'm going to do it and then Again, that need for control, that need for approval, I got it mm-hmm. from that experience. And mm. and then I thought, okay, this is something, I, I'm, apparently I'm good at this. Because this was the other thing, is I didn't even know if I was any good at it. When I came to MSM, I remember thinking, well, we're about to find out if I'm a good singer or if I'm just like, good for Texas, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that Bombshell Baby was the moment when I learned, well, Bombshell Baby plus I had spent the last three years working in New York and doing readings and seeing what kind of the competition was as far as being a writer, and I had yet to be impressed. I had done a lot of stuff where I just thought, oh, come on, I could write something better than this. Mm. And that, I think, for a lot of actors turned writers, that is part of the process, is you sit there going, you, you just have enough times in that rehearsal room where you sit there going, God, if they just move these, this around, move this here, and then you start having all this anger that you don't know what to do with, and then eventually you realize, oh, my problem is that I'm inhabiting the wrong role right now. I, I'm supposed to be a right. I'm supposed to be an actor, and I'm acting as though I'm a writer, <laughs> and so that needs to be addressed. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and so now, now that I've been doing this for a while, and and I feel comfortable with my many gifts, mm-hmm. I I can go into a space and not feel that. Like, I don't care. It's not like you're paying me to be an actor right now. I'm going to do every, I'm going to bring you everything I have. And if you want my advice, I'm going to give it to you. But I'm not going to give you all that much because you're not paying me for that. (laughs) So it feels very clear to me now what my role is in Mm. the room. And that gives me a lot of peace. I think people think sometimes that, oh, if I become a writer or if uh, what you'd think you don't, people that are writers want to be actors, right? It's the same. It's all Mm. the same, very similar community. And so like, when you see people making that transition, you see people be very tentative, like, oh, will I fuck this up for everyone somehow? Am I, am I crossing a taboo? Am I, is it sort of the same thing as making a move on your best friend? And the answer is no. Just think twice before you start talking, <laughs> basically, is it. And then when in doubt, ask. You know, and I'm yeah. sure that I have not done everything perfectly, but I would rather apologize than withhold something that might help or... Yeah, I, I, we're all figuring it out. Yeah. We're all figuring it out how to be in the room in the best, most positive way. But that's always my goal. Yeah. So, in a way that respects everyone's role. Right. Mm-hmm. So now, when you have these sort of two identities that are related but different, like mm-hmm. how do they, how do they, how like how, how do they balance for you at this point? Um, it's all time. Uh, so f- this month I'm in rehearsal for Enchanted April. And I knew that October would not exist for me as a writer. That it would be a month where Christy, the actor, was there. And once that time is done... So really, for me, it's about managing my own expectations. It's about going, okay, don't beat yourself up that you're not getting a ton of writing done this month. Because your brain is full of lines. Your brain is full of blocking. Your brain is full of all these other things. And then, 
I try to also plan out like, okay, I've got this week is going to be light. So what do I need to get done? Okay, I need his I am song to be done. We can finish that by the end of the week. So it's scheduling. That's the answer. Uh, it's mm-hmm. embracing scheduling. Yeah. I always ask this question to mm-hmm. people who are both writers and actors, and I always get an answer like that. And <laughs> so and I'm not I'm not saying that everyone feels the same way, but what I'm saying is like the answer is always um, time. <laughs> yeah. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe it's because I don't know what I'm talking about, but like I'm o- I'm always like picturing this like <laughs> I'm always picturing this like struggle for like real estate in your head in terms of like just identity. Mm. You know what I mm-hmm, mean? Mm-hmm. It does that resonate or is that no, no not at all. No, not anymore. Uh-huh. I mean like I get it. I totally get that. But I think that you have to decide. Uh-huh. And like, you know, I think part of it is that actors face so much rejection and you face so much. Like if you're an actor who does not have a Broadway credit, you have a neurosis. (laughs) (laughs) Probably, you know, there's going to be a part of even if the neurosis is an inconvenient, even if it's just a microaggression. I know for me, the most irritating thing about not yet having a Broadway credit is that I cannot charge quite so much for my time. You know, mm. and and it, I know that it's not a reflection on me because there's a very finite number of jobs that I'm right for on Broadway. And there are already people in them and some of them are my friends, you know, like it just is. It's just a job. Um, but I so I think that my the fact that I had to deal with that, that I had to go, OK, you, you know, you start off on the bottom. And, and as somebody that came in from the opera world, you really start on the bottom because everybody thinks you can't act. Sometimes they're right. And so, like, you come in and and you are learning everything for the first time. You did not, I did not go to college doing staged readings of things, right? Mm -hmm. So I learned by doing. And eventually, and at first you feel like an imposter. And then after a while you're in a show with somebody who's been on Broadway and you're in a show with more Broadway people. And eventually you go, this is who I am. I'm one of them. Even if I don't have, like, the shingle that they have, I'm in the business and I've done it. And I'm, here I am, you know, and then that softens into just your life and your identity and I think that excuse me once you've done that once it's easier to do it twice because then you go okay like I am a writer as I have written things and then you realize that really what that thought is is a projection onto others because that's just you assuming that everyone secretly wants to be a writer but they're afraid to say so but that's not true that's only people that are writers that feel that way you know it's like being bisexual like Mm -hmm. I I'm a proud bisexual non-binary person uh, woman plus, I'm comfortable, very comfortable with woman plus feels good. Um, <clears throat> but I've talked to so many bisexual people who feel like they didn't have, you know, like they'll talk about their experiences and be like, well, I just, you know, I felt like kind of like, oh my God, am I really bi? And then I was like, oh my God, am I gay? Oh, I'm just straight or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, congrats. That is the bi experience. <laughs> That's it. You're living it. Like yeah. you're, you aren't going to have like, I, well, I was listening to Barbara Streisand records in my glitter jumper because you're not a gay man. You know what I mean? You're going to have this bisexual story and it's just that it's unfamiliar to people. Mm-hmm. And that's why people feel, oh, it's just me that feels this way. This must mean that I'm just a piece of trash, mm-hmm. you know? And so, um, yeah, so I think it's the same with, with any dual identity. Any, any yeah. identity that isn't just black and white is tricky. Yeah. But the more comfortable you get with the fact that we're all hustling and we're all entrepreneurs and we're all doing, hopefully adding new skills to our, like right now, I'm my New Year's resolution this year was to get good at piano. 
not just to improve. Last year was to get better at piano. This year is get good at it, which mm-hmm. I have because I have accomplished playing the Chopin piece that I set out for myself. Yay. Um, but that's an identity stretch. You know, it's take. it took me time to be able to say, yeah, I'm a pianist. Yeah. I, am, I am a pianist. I can play the piano. Am I as good as so many of my friends who are classically trained pianists? Of course not. But you know what? I wouldn't want I wouldn't want somebody that studied with me who maybe they're they're an accountant by day, but they take voice lessons and they sing with the choir to not say they're a singer. To right. deny themselves that. Like what the fuck is the point of life? <laughs> Why? Why? It's funny, I totally I agree with you a hundred percent, but I think there's still a tiny part of me mm-hmm. that does feel at some level territorial about my writer identity that you know Mm -hmm. someone who maybe I mean I don't know what the bar is Mm -hmm. but I feel like there's some level at which of barely writing at Mm -hmm. which I would say no I think you and I are something different and that somehow feels meaningful to me well sure you're you're a productive writer (laughs) like (laughs) maybe that's true maybe it's just about doing the thing I think it's about doing the thing and I think that that if you're writing badly you're a writer if you're not Mm -hmm. writing at all I don't know. Mm. You know, but but then yeah. once again, the question just, it all boils down to time. It always comes back to our expectations of what the timeline, quote unquote, should be. I know that for me, I had a mind-blowing experience at BMI. And I think it will illuminate my statement. Also, I think stories are interesting, so I'd prefer mm. to tell stories on the podcast. Um, I presented a song in BMI a few years ago. And it was for, it was a... a I was presenting a song from a piece that I'd been commissioned to write. I'd been matched with the composer, and we got along fine, but it was not like a passion project. It was just like, I had to write this, and here we go, right? And I was sort of pouty, and like, I was sort of like, I don't know, and I kind of, I wanted feedback, but I was also kind of like, I kind of already knew it sucked. Mm. And who was the moderator? Lynn Ahrens. <laughs> and Lynn Ahrens is like, listens to the song and goes, okay, was this music first or lyric first? And we were like, music first. And then she looks squarely at me and goes... So this is your fault. Huh. And I was like, yeah. And so then she just read me. She went through the and just told me every single thing I did wrong. And I just listened to her and listened to her. And I was like, thank you very much. That was great. I asked her if I could, afterward, after class was over, I asked her if I could take a picture. And she was like, um, are you sure? <laughs> I won't show it to anybody. She was like, okay. Um, but And then I went into a closet and cried and drank white wine for three days. But then when I came out, I was a better writer because yeah. I went, she's damn right it's my fault. I'm, And since then, I have, I don't feel like I've turned out a shitty lyric since then because I've known they're, ner- they're not done yet. That's That, that was my problem mm-hmm. is I thought close enough, eh, not close enough until it's fucking perfect, mm. which to relate back to MSM, when I took my first lesson at MSM with Cynthia Hoffman, who is the chair of Juilliard's voice department, they have like the same faculty. So like all of my lessons were at Juilliard. I'm at this huge room in Juilliard. Miss Hoffman, who we, we called her Miss Hoffman because it's opera school. Um, mm. I remember I sang my aria and she goes, hmm, well, it's good, but it's not good enough for there. And she <laughs> gestures behind her to the Metropolitan Opera. Oh, wow. I was 20. Uh, and I remember going, oh, oh, I see. Those are the stakes now. That's uh, where we are. And when Lynn Aarons came in and kicked my ass, that was her going, these are the stakes. Yeah. These are the stakes. Mm-hmm. Stop acting like you're in school. So anyway, uh, that has to do with what you were saying. 
Um, about oh, the being a writer. Write, yeah. A writer. The bottom line is, is people delude themselves about stuff all the time. Yeah. I, if you want to get mad about something, get mad at all the voice teachers that don't mm. know how to sing. Huh. I'm in the member. I'm, my favorite part of Facebook is the freaking voice teacher forums that I'm in because yeah. it's just such a, a hate read all the time. Oh, you know, there's boy. there's these people that come in and go, well, I've got this one student who says that she's an Irish soprano. Has anyone ever heard of this voice type? I think it's you know, distinguished by very floaty, breathy notes, an inability to sing below the staff, and she loves Enya. You know what I mean? Like uh, shit, shit where you go, you can't be serious. Huh. And then you Google the person, you find their website, and they're a reputable voice teacher somewhere, and it just makes your brain explode. So like, that's, so I suppose I have a very high threshold for imposters or hmm. hacks or people who don't know of what they speak. And I'd say that it's, better for them to go out into the world because the reality is is you put yourself on that track and you're basically putting yourself on a collision course with embarrassment as a singer because it's Mm -hmm. a public thing whereas as a writer yeah there's all these jack-offs who can like say that for 10 years and they never show anybody anything but like I guess they're not hurting anything unless you like accidentally believe them and sleep with them (laughs) but maybe it would be good I don't know maybe you learn something maybe you'll get a story out of it and then was it really a loss? That's all, Rob.